Hello, this is The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley. It's Monday the 13th of July and today we're going to brief you on the COVID test. Should we be forcing people to take it? A person who refuses can be taken to another place, put in isolation and sat there for up to 72 hours until they agree to undergo a test. That story in just a moment. First, I'm joined by Annika Smethurst to talk through the big news stories of the day. Morning, Tom. More than a 1,000 people are being told to self-isolate after visiting a pub in Western Sydney. The outbreak at the Crossroads Hotel in Kasula has been linked to nine infections now. Yeah, patrons who've been there between July 3 and July 10 are now being asked to isolate for 14 days and get the COVID test. Disease detectives are still trying to work out where the cluster came from. Uh, The Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, has told Sky News they expect to find out today. My understanding is that New South Wales Health is getting very close to identifying the original source. I am hopeful and confident that within 24 hours they uh, uh, will be in a position to identify that source. Yeah, pretty concerning situation, this one, Annika. Yeah, and even a federal MP visited, so they've been forced to self-isolate. And there has been talk that a staff member had it and worked over multiple nights, so that could really lead to a number of outbreaks. Yeah, and I guess we won't know how many cases there are until the, the testing results come back over the coming days and weeks. One of the concerning things I thought, Tom, was they were sending everyone back to the pub to get tests. They were doing it in the car park, so if you didn't already have it, perhaps you could pick it up there. And the government's trying to push the COVID safe app again. Deputy Chief Medical Officer Nick Coatsworth says despite only one contact being found through the app so far, it's still a major tool in our arsenal against the coronavirus. If all Australian smart users downloaded the COVID safe app and obviously had it activated, that there will be a 50% reduction, onward reduction in cases. Based on the current number of downloads, if everyone has it activated, there'll be a 25% reduction in cases. Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt says so far more than 6.6 million Australians have downloaded the app. It comes as the COVID cases climb quickly with more than 470 new infections reported nationwide and that's just across the weekend. Yeah, the vast majority of those cases were in Victoria. Just 17 of the 470 were from the rest of the country. Seems like a pretty tough sell on the COVID safe app, Annika. Yeah, 6.6 million downloads. I'm not one of them. And only one case has been identified. And Ghislaine Maxwell, the former partner of Jeffrey Epstein, is fighting to keep an extremely personal dossier secret. The socialite's facing six charges related to grooming, transporting minors for illegal sexual acts and perjury. Yeah, this dossier is allegedly filled with information on her sex life as well as that of other high-profile figures. Her lawyer, Jeffrey Piyulka, says they should remain secret, describing them as extremely personal, confidential and subject to considerable abuse by the media. Yeah, they're alleged to contain uh, lots of information, hundreds of names and videos. Um, I think this is a dossier that the world is waiting to see, Annika. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyers are also trying to secure her release on bail over concerns of her catching the coronavirus. There also claims the New York prison where she's being held, how moving her between cells to avoid threats to her life. Yeah, you can understand why after what happened to her partner. But jails is an interesting one, Tom. There's been huge outbreaks across the world at jails for coronavirus, those close living. So maybe she does have a bit of a concern there. Yeah, and on the dossier, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see what's in that dossier. I wonder what legal grounds I have to keep it secret because I think there's a big interest in finding out who was part of um, this sex ring. Absolutely. A few royal watchers too, perhaps.
And Donald Trump has finally been caught wearing a mask in public. I think it's a great thing to wear a mask. I've never been against masks, but I do believe they have a, a time and a place. In reality, he'd actually been refusing to wear one for months, but over the weekend, as you heard there, he visited the Walter Reed National Military Medical Centre, which houses wounded, ill and injured veterans where masks are compulsory. One of his biggest political opponents, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, said on CNN that she thinks he's crossed a bridge. That's an admission that if, if you're going to see our soldiers, you have to wear a mask. If you're going to be with our children, you have to wear a mask. If we want to stop the spread Thank of the you. coronavirus, you have to wear a mask. So hopefully, by his example, he will change his attitude, which will be helpful in stopping the spread. So Trump's mask move comes after months of calls from his own public health experts to set an example for the country. Uh, and Victorians have been asked here in Australia to wear masks when they go outside. Here's the Premier there, Daniel Andrews. So whether you're in an Uber or a taxi or if you're on public transport or many other examples, even shopping for the basics you need when you need them, either a homemade mask or another mask, it is our request of you. It's not compulsory. Yeah, they might not have the presidential seal on them like the one President Donald Trump is wearing, but the Victorian government is ordering more than 2 million reusable masks to distribute throughout the community. And you ordered some over the weekend? I did, Tom. I thought that if, you know, I'm, I'm convinced we're only a few weeks behind Victoria, the rest of the country, so I thought if I'm going to have to go shopping, I'm going to need a mask, so I bought some pretty ones. All right, Annika, look forward to seeing those pretty masks you've ordered. Um, we'll catch you tomorrow on The Briefing. Up next, Jan Fran. Good morning. It is Jan Fran with you. And today we're asking, should we be forcing people to take the COVID-19 test? Now, COVID testing, especially in hotspots, is really going to be key to stopping the spread of this virus. Since the second wave hit Melbourne, we've been hearing some pretty alarming news, I think, about thousands of people refusing to get tested. We have had more than 10,000 people who have refused to be tested. Some people believe that coronavirus is a conspiracy. It's about your safety, of course, but it's also about the safety of the entire state. I think it's a pretty reasonable thing for, for the government to ask people to do. As you can hear there, the reason this debate's happening is the failure of Melbourne's hotel quarantine program, where we learnt that 30% of people had refused testing when they were leaving quarantine. So that was more than 5,000 people. We also learned that during the testing blitz in Melbourne's hotspots that 10,000 people refused the test. Yeah. Now, there are various state laws that allow authorities to fine people for not taking a test or you can isolate someone as a way of making them get the test. The question is, should we use these laws? Yeah, and given the impact of this pandemic on the whole community, people's mental health, the economy, it can be hard to understand why people would refuse the test. So, Jan, you actually did a call out on your Facebook page to ask yeah. people why they'd refused it. Yeah, and I got a lot of responses that I actually wasn't expecting. You know, some said that they were told it cost a certain amount that they couldn't afford. Some said they were in precarious jobs, so they couldn't afford to take that time off as they waited for the results. There was one woman who said that she'd refused because her partner's in hospital and she's their only means of transport and care. There was one person who said that they had a criminal history. They were worried about having to deal with authorities. Um, some people are here on temporary visas and they can't risk their jobs. Mm. And there was one woman, Sarah, um, which is not her real name, who has autism. And she said that autistic people experience sensory input very differently to neurotypical people. And she said that she had a really bad experience getting tested. 
they told me that I would be tested inside a tent um, that was there and that didn't actually end up happening. So that was part of the anxiety for me, I guess, is I was very on display for the test and I wasn't expecting that. The nurse was quite forceful and I did ask her to stop and she didn't um, because it was very painful for me. Um, then she said it was time to do the second nostril. I said, no, I really don't want to do that again. Um, she said, well, you have to. (laughs) And I said, no, not going to happen. And then it just sort of felt like there was a crowd of nurses all looking at me, like in a very humiliating way. I didn't feel very good about it at all. Um, so then I just got up and left. She actually said to me before I left, oh, that's fine. I've got enough of a sample here anyway. At which point I thought, well, then why on earth were you going to force me to do the second nostril? Mm. Um, but so when I left, I went and sat in my car and I just burst into tears and I was bleeding and it was just not only painful, but really humiliating. So a very tough experience for Sarah there. So given what she's been through, she doesn't think people should be forced to tank the test. I think that sounds absolutely horrible. (laughs) It really does. I understand nobody wants this virus to last any longer than it has to or to spread any further than it has to, but I would rather isolate for an infinite amount of time than go through that again. Would you get your child tested? I know that your child has autism as well and and might experience some of the same sensory issues that you experience. If someone requested they get tested, what would you say? If they didn't want to have it done, I would not force them to have it done. I I have heard stories about children being held down by their parents for tests to happen while they're kicking and screaming and really distressed. And that just, I think that's awful. So that's how Sarah feels about it. Let's find out more about the powers that do exist to force someone to do the tests and whether we should use them. Bill O'Shea is a lawyer who's worked at Melbourne's Alfred Hospital. He was there for 13 years. He doesn't support using the full powers of the Public Health and Wellbeing Act to coerce people into taking the test. Well, we certainly have the power to force them. Uh, Whether we do or not, probably more a question of how you win the hearts and minds of people during a pandemic. People are annoyed enough about being locked down, but if there were stories getting out about people being forced to have tests against their will, um, it's going to really raise a lot of problems for the politicians because they really need cooperation. So your argument is if we started forcing people using the powers of that act, that we would lose their cooperation potentially in the fight against the pandemic. I see another side of that argument, Bill, that a lot of people want our health authority to do as much as possible, particularly in high-risk areas like the Melbourne hotspots or hotel quarantine. And actually, you would get a lot more cooperation getting a community to lock down if you knew that where the risks were the highest, every single thing was being done to mitigate that risk, including testing. Well, that's true, but you've got to look at the Act itself. And Section 112 is interesting. It's only three lines. But what it says is that... um, If there are different ways in which you can require a person to take a test, the measure which is the least restrictive of the rights of the person should be chosen. Least restrictive is a common legal term in health. It's often used in mental health that you take the least restrictive option. In guardianship, you take the least restrictive option when you limit someone's liberty. So there is a requirement on the chief medical officer to at least look at what the alternatives are 
and clearly persuasion is one of those. Um, and I guess if you're in the uh, public housing state, you would want to be noting who didn't take a test and who did. So there are other ways you can do it, but it's very draconian. I mean, this Act has very draconian powers for people who the Chief uh, Health Officer decides should be required to take a test. What are some of those draconian powers? Well, for a start, um, a person who refuses can be taken to another place, put in isolation and sat there for up to 72 hours until they agree to undergo a test. Now, I should add that um, it's not permitted under the Act to require a person to undergo a, a test by force. But nevertheless, you know, if you're taken Physical away, force, put in isolation, mean. well, held down and having a swab put up their nose. Now, the other thing the Act says is that if you refuse a test after the Chief Health Officer has made an examination and testing order, and, and that's a tricky business as well, but it's not just knocking on the door and saying, would you like a test? There has to be an examination and testing order given. The penalty units, which is $9,900 at the moment, for refusing to have the test uh, in the face of an examination and testing order. Bill, if now, there was someone out there who didn't want to get tested and you were their lawyer, what advice would you give them around this? I would simply say to the person to stress the fact that this is a human rights issue, notwithstanding it's in the statute. Um, it's a human rights issue. I'm refusing it just like I'm refusing any other form of medical treatment that I wish to refuse. That's where I stand. And I think the problem for the testers, particularly in the public housing estates, is they have so many people to get through, it's pretty unlikely they would spend a couple of hours with one resident, putting it practically, going through the process in the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. I think they'd probably just move on to the next person and note that there had been a refusal. So from a practical point of view, it's difficult to implement, even though the statute's there and the financial penalty is draconian. Can you imagine uh, in the media if a person in a public housing estate tells the media, I've just been fined $9,900. Yeah, but that would send a great message to the rest of society that if you refuse to test, there's massive consequences. Testing rates would go up and we'd stop the spread of the pandemic that's ruining people's lives. There's no doubt that there should be the strongest encouragement possible for people to take the test. And the threats that the government has through the Public Health and Wellbeing Act should be sufficient to make them comply. But you're sort of arguing not to use them that it no, would, it would saying, lose faith with the public. I'm saying that they can be used, but there's quite a, an involvement in doing it to get it right. So that was lawyer Bill O'Shea. Let's get a medical perspective on this debate. Mary Louise McLaws is a professor in infection prevention and is working on the WHO's COVID advisory panel. So a big authority on a lot of these questions. Mary Louise, do you think we should take strong measures to compel people to take the COVID-19 test? I don't think we need strong measures. I think that Australians are sensible enough to realise that uh, with an analogy of roadside breath testing for alcohol, that if we don't think we're impaired, but we can hurt ourselves, those in our car and others inadvertently, that we see the benefits of that. Okay, but this is life or death. Thousands of people did refuse the test. Why not do what the Prime Minister is suggesting and, and find these people? What's the downside in taking that approach? 
The downside is uh, losing the hearts and minds of Australians. Um, this is a long-term pandemic and um, my observation for the 2003 SARS outbreak when I was tasked to do some reviewing of responses, identified that the most important thing is to get the trust and the hearts and the minds of people so that they can continue to cooperate for the long haul because SARS was um, uh, didn't finish till June and this is going to be an even longer haul. So for us to start as a community to become dictatorial does not bode well for the long term. But we are in so many other ways. We locked down those eight public housing towers last week. Uh, we've forced people to stay at home. There's fines for crossing the border. Surely that yes. argument, you yeah, know, really I, isn't isn't working anymore. And this is just one other yeah. thing on top of many other things. And and you'd win the hearts and minds of the rest of the population going through those tough lockdowns if you knew that people in high risk areas were actually fronting up for the test. I take your point. I mean, your point is very valid, particularly when we tell people don't cross the border and they still do. There is always a group that think the rules don't apply to them because they think they've been able to work out their risk. Uh, that's very true. Um, and the buildings were locked down. I believe they could have been locked down with more compassion, with more notice. But I do take your point that time is marching on. And uh, for a virus that doesn't wait, that it could be a time when people do start to be asked for the test or they get fined. What do we know about the saliva test and how effective that is? Because that could help get us around these difficulties with the nasal swab test. My understanding of this test is that it's not diagnostic, it's a screening test. And screening tests uh, usually have a slight decrease uh, in its ability to uh, identify somebody who's truly infected. But that decrease in the saliva test is only by a few percentage points. So in large numbers within a, a given population, you may miss out a few, but they're going to be tested a second time. So it has a lot of benefits. It takes a few moments. It, the test isn't impacted by operator error where the person doing the swab may not go far enough into the throat or into the nose or too far to cause pain and only a very small decline in what we call sensitivity. It apparently has very good, excellent specificity. In other words, its ability to correctly label you as negative, um, but like all screening tests, it's not as perfect as a diagnostic test. That was Professor Mary Louise McLaws from New South Wales University. So clearly this is a really tough issue. The far less invasive saliva test could be a solution here. I think if, if that was more accurate. I think people would be more inclined to get tested for sure. But unfortunately, it is not as accurate as the nasal swab. But I think that there are people working on it. Yeah. So fingers, toes, all of our... Limbs, peripheries <laughs> crossed for that. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, face masks, should we be wearing them? And should they even be compulsory? That's The Briefing. Catch it on your favourite podcast app or download the new Podcast One Australia app. A Podcast One production.